0: Michael McMullen, this is the World Snooker Tour podcast, and I'm joined today by someone who's still going strong more than 30 years after he turned professional. Andy Hicks, welcome along. Thanks for having me. Not many players still around from the days when the game went open in the early 90s, Andy, but you're one of them. What was it like at that time, those incredible summer festivals of qualifying that just dominated the professional scene in that era?
1: It was long and hard. I mean, like I said, I, I basically turned professional at 17 um, and they did a lot of pre-qualifying at Blackpool to Norbert Castle um, and it was best part of three to four months of qualifying through the summer and um, yeah it was an introduction for you know for the for all the, the, the tournaments ahead and, and how tough it was going to be but um, yeah I'm happy to be a 30 years on.
0: Yeah and you were already well known as a very good player you were one of the top amateurs around so what sort of expectations did you have about what your professional career might bring when you started out?
1: Well, I was fortunate because when I left school, um, I was managed by uh, an ex-professional, Bill Oliver, who was on the board. Um, so I was very thankful there because he took me under his wing, um, basically paid me a wage to play snooker, and that was that was the start of um, things to come. So he must have seen something in me that was, um, you know, good enough to be a professional. Um, I managed to win the British British under 19s when I was um, fifteen, um, and so yeah, so I was I was lucky to be managed and um, you know had the chance then to to turn professional at 17, so that, that was good, and I think it would have been a little bit different if he hadn't have managed me, because um, you know the cost early on was you know quite expensive, and I don't think we'd have, you know, I'd have been able to afford to be a professional if it weren't for him.
0: And it was a very different time in that sense, because nowadays, in most tournaments, if you get through your first match, there's prize money, but in those <clears> days, you could have to win maybe six, seven, eight matches before you got anything, so the cost of even turning pro was significant.
1: Yeah, well it's changed obviously because many years ago, yeah, look you rightfully said that you you know you had to qualify through and not earn any money. Um, but of course as you got higher in the rankings you were then guaranteed money if you were in a certain bracket, i.e. top ninety-six, top sixty-four, top thirty-two, top sixteen. So um, it's a little bit different now because everybody's pretty much in it round one. And of course, if you don't open it when you're opening game, you don't get paid. So um, it's a little bit in my opinions a little bit more cutthroat these days and it probably was years ago because even though the cost was there once you built up your ranking and you got further up the rankings um you know you were on guarantees so that's that's the sort of difference between then and now really
0: when you started out coming from as i say having been one of the big fish on the amateur scene that's obviously not going to be the situation when you start out as a pro so were
1: you surprised by how good the standard was or was it pretty much what you'd expected yeah i mean the standard was brilliant but i mean um, there there were some players, shall I say, a little bit older that were sort of slipping down the rankings that you were going to be playing. I mean, when I turned pro, I mean, Fred Davis was still playing, mm-hmm. bless him, you know. So, uh, so you did have kind of draws sometimes um, in the pre-qualifying. But, uh, you know, as the standard went on and you got to the top end of the game, I mean, you know, I, I, I came into the game when Hendry was at his peak and, you know, he was so dominant, you know. I mean, he was as good as any player today. And that's why he was a seven times world champion.
0: Now, you were well able to cope, though, as it turned out, because you became a big occasion player. It seemed that your best runs always came in the biggest and most high-profile events, and never more so, Andy, than the 1995 World Championship, when you beat Steve Davis in the first round, who was still number two in the world at the time. Now, people who weren't around maybe wouldn't grasp the enormity of that, because that was at a time you had very, very few surprises
1: at the Crucible. So it was a massive story, wasn't it? Well, it was, and it was the first year that I actually got to the Crucible, so... um me and my manager, as I say, Bill, Bill Oliver at the time decided to go up a couple of days before I played just to get used to the, you know, the surroundings. Because I mean, of course you're playing Steve Davis, who's, it's like his second home there. So, um, it was only
0: six years since he'd won it at that time. Right. Since the last time he'd won it.
1: Yeah. Well, I didn't realize that, but obviously he was dominant in the eighties, of course. But, um, so yeah, so I just had to get a feel for the place and to give myself a bit more of a chance against him, because like I said, it was new to me and it was his second home. So, uh, I was thankful that we'd done that, and it sort of settled me in when I watched a couple of games, and then, and then straight out, and then um, you know to play someone like Steve Davis. So yeah, so I knew I was in good shape to possibly beat him, but um you know this is the World Championship and at the Crucibles, you never know where you're going to turn up and play, but. Um, Thankfully, I I played pretty good.
0: A couple of things I remember about that match. The first one is that as the winning line came into view, you didn't seem to shrink from it at all. If anything, you grew stronger when you got close to winning.
1: Yeah, I I remember the the first session. I came out six three, and I won a tightish last frame. It could have been five four at the first session, but um, yeah, I come out six three, which sort of eased me a little bit with a you know a little bit of a cushion going into this into the second session. So um, but yeah, I mean, I played pretty good. I played pretty good all the way through, really, and um. I think what stood out more for me than anything, not just to beat Steve Davis, was I, I sort of matched him tactically. And I knew I had to do that because, I mean, you, you got no chance against someone like him if you... I mean, yeah, I knew my scoring boots was pretty good, but, I mean, you have to tactically be be right up there because if not you're not going to get the chance to score in the first place
0: and the other thing I remember is how calm you were at the end and I remember you had been in the interview with David Vine I think it was on the BBC and he was almost like saying are you all right Andy do you, you do realize you've just beaten Steve Davis here so it was amazing how you seem to take it
1: all in your stride yeah but you don't feel like it when you're out there <laughs> No, indeed. when you're out there, it's a, it's a different ball game but yeah I mean you've Look, this game is not like tennis where you can get your anger. Out. If you say if you miss a ball at tennis or you're out, you know, hit a ball out and you shouldn't have done. At least the next shot, I guess you can you can take your anger out a little bit, hit the ball a little bit harder, or take your frustration out. But snooker is nothing like that. I mean, if you take if you play a bad shot, I mean, you sit down, you stew, and you you think about all the things that this, that, and the other. So so it's a bit of a mind game as well. But um, yeah, it, it's a it's such a tough game to deal with.
0: More often than not, actually, when you get these big upsets, what happens is the giant killer then gets knocked out in the next round. It's actually very rare that they go on much of a run. Judd Trump, obviously, was an exception when he went on to reach the final in 2011. But you booked that trend, beat Willie Thorne in the next round, who was very experienced. Peter Ebden, who was really going well at the time in the quarterfinals. So where are you starting to think you could win it and be world champion?
1: Well, you, you say about the Willie Thorne-Peter um, Ebdon match, but uh, certainly against Ebden, I think they tipped him to win the tournament at the time. So Well, he,
0: he just won the Irish Masters, beating Henry in the final, so right, he was okay. playing really well at that time, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I knew definitely that they, they tipped him to win the World Championship that year, so I knew it was a big game. And again, I, I, I was so pleased with myself because I went 3-0 down. And uh, I managed to claw my way back in because uh, the wheels were going to start to fall off if I was like start to you know lose more frames. But three 0 down, I picked myself up and I, I played good against him. Really played played very well again tactically. I played very well against Epton because he's another player that if you don't compete with him tactically, you're not going to get your chances. Mm. So were there world title dreams? Well, yeah. I mean, of course you do. You dream of all these things. I mean, I think I think playing um, Nigel Bond in the semi-finals was it was an even match really it was a sort of a toss of a coin in a way because obviously we you know we're we're both in that elk really that we had a good chance to get to the final and play I think it was hen well, obviously Hendry, or I think Jimmy white played in the other That's semi-final. Right, yeah. so mm-hmm. my dream my actual dream was because I, I childhood hero was Jimmy White so my actual dream at the time I was thinking be incredible if I was to win the semi-finals and get to the final and play Jimmy but more so than, than Hendry, nothing against Hendry, of course, but just because of, you know, he was my childhood, hero really
0: so you were in the semi-final then against Nigel Bond now obviously he was a big favourite to beat you but it wasn't like you were playing a Hendry or a John Higgins or someone it was a match that you had a genuine chance of winning but the first session it all seemed to catch up with you a bit
1: yeah if I'd have turned back time and done a few things differently one of them definitely would have been a lot of the press work that I'd done after beating Peter Ebdon in the afternoon the day before um, playing Nigel um I think it was about two or three hours of, of you know, or, I mean, in some ways I felt that I, I should do it because, you know, I, there was a lot of attention back home in the West Country. Um, but maybe I would have reigned back a little bit because I was very, very tired going out playing Nigel and we could all, you know, make excuses. I mean, it, it wasn't necessarily an excuse as such, but I lost it in the first session purely because, you know, it was it was everything around me that was sort of catching up. And like I said, if I'd have turned back different times, I would have um, maybe not done so much press work after um, being Peter Ebden and um, maybe just trying to get back to the hotel and relax a little bit more because, you know, like I said, the day before you're playing the semi-finals of the World Championship, I mean, you don't sleep much. I mean, it's like, you know, everything... uh, everything gets built up and it's the adrenaline that you know it's it's the biggest event of the season for us like you know
0: back then it was first to 16 in the semi-finals so going into the last session you're 15 seven down so obviously on the brink of defeat you come absolutely flying out of the blocks get back to 15 11 by the interval now if you had just managed to win even one more frame bond was really going to start panicking at that stage but it didn't quite happen
1: no it didn't um and that's the thing, I suppose, you know, when you relax a little bit because you've got nothing to lose at 15-7 down, there's no expectations on you. Um, I did play play really good. I won the first four frames. I think I had 100 um, and a couple of other breaks. So um, that took me to the interval, which is unfortunate because obviously it'd be nice to just carry it on um, so I knew he was edgy about wanting to just get over the line and, and get it done. But um, And then I remember coming out after the interval and uh, he, he, I remember it again to this day that he left me the white on the black cushion and there was like a dodgy sort of plant to middle. Um, I thought I could make it and I just missed out on it really. And that was a good chance to score again and that gave him a chance. And I think he settled by making a 40 or a 50 and uh, and to sort of close me out the match. But yeah, I mean, uh, who knows if I'd, have, if I'd have maybe made the plant and, you know, nicked another frame, then, you know, he would have certainly got edgy and uh, who knows what would have been.
0: So that was the end of that. Mm. Stephen Hendry, as was usually the case in those days, ended up winning the championship, beating Nigel Bond in the final. But you did build on what happened in Sheffield, didn't you, Andy? Because the following season, UK Championship and the Masters, you get to semi-finals of both of them. You were really showing a taste for the big occasion.
1: Yeah, I for some reason, it was just the way it was at the time. I mean, um, you know, the big events just seemed to really be attractive, you know. And uh, they, I mean, again, the UK, when I got to semis, I beat Ronnie in that event, se- uh, 9-7. Um, so that you know, it was some some great matches and um, yeah, it's just a shame that if I could look back on my career and and people could say this that and the other, that it's just a shame that I might be tarred with the brush that you know I was the man who got to so many semi-finals and and never to win an event, and that that sort of hurts a little bit inside because I mean when I was um, seventeen turning pro, there was nothing more you know there was nothing more on my mind that you know I, I was convinced or. You know that I was going to win a ranking event because I because it's just that mindset when you you think you're that good and take on everything and you and you think you're going to pot everything. So um, it's it's a shame that obviously if if the, my career ends and I, I've never won a, a major event, um, that would be a thing that sort of haunts me a little bit.
0: The fact that you never got into the top 16 is very surprising when you consider what a good player you were at that time. Do you think, Andy, <laughs> with all those semi-finals that you had, if you'd managed to go on and win even one of them, whatever tournament it was, that that might have made the difference and you could really have kicked on from there and become one of the very best players?
1: Without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, if if you go back to that World Championship semi-finals against Nigel Bond, If you, if, if anybody knew, I was number 18 in the world playing Nigel. And if I'd have, if, it, if that wasn't enough because it was ranking points back, and if I'd have beat Nigel to get to the final, I would have got in the top sixteen. So if it wasn't a big enough match anyway to get to the final of the World Championship, um, it was a it, and it was a big it was a big um, deal breaker back then because if you was in the top sixteen, you were quite well protected and you came in at the, the latter of you know latter of every event, mm. um, and of course the following year I would have been straight in at the World Championship, whereas of course the following year I had to pre qualify. Um, so it, it was massive, really. So yeah, rightfully so. I mean, like I said, if I maybe got to the se- got to the final, um, I would have been then guaranteed in the top sixteen, and who knows, I may have stayed there for for three or four years or, or, or more.
0: Let's go back to the Crucible in two thousand and four, and a first round match that you won against <clears throat> Quinton Han. It was a very strange match. Nothing in terms of what happened on the table, but the tension and antagonism i suppose that built up between the two of you and you ended up having to be separated by laurie annandale the referee at the end of the match now that's not the sort of thing you would ever have wanted to get involved in so how did it all come to that
1: no i mean I, you know i don't have any animosity against anybody and um yeah if i could turn back time i would have done things differently um so it's something that i sort of want to you know put to bed really that uh that, that sort of never happened. But but basically, it, it all stemmed from... I played him three times previous. And um, all three matches, I lost 5-4 to him. Um, one of them was in Plymouth, in my hometown. Um, and, and the one that struck out was the... I, I forget what event it was now. But um, we were... I was something like 3-2 up. I've pinched a friend go 3-2 up. He's gone out. This is live on SkyMind. He's gone out to the toilet. And we heard a big bang, even from in the auditorium. So anyway, he's come back in. He's breaking off, ready, ready to break. So he breaks off, and all of a sudden, he has to have attention because he's got blood on his hand. So he said he slipped over when he went into the toilet. Now everybody knew he hit the door, mm. hit the door on the way into the toilet. Yeah. So anyway, long story short, it was a break in, in. So there's always something going on with him, and he's always a bit of a nuisance, basically. And um, so, yeah, so we've had to stop playing for 10 minutes while he had his ha- his hand dressed and whatever. He still carried on, and, and like I said, he beat me again 5-4. So, you know, so basically, the long long of the short is, is that when we when we um, <clears throat> were playing in the World Championship, um, it, it may be my fault a little bit, there was a little bit of needle going on, but um, he went in off, that's right, and I, I didn't slightly, sl- he thought I slightly sniggered and laughed at him, but I didn't. And anyway, so because the two seats are right beside each mm. other, he, a couple of other shots were played and then we both back, sat back in our seat and he whispered, whispered to me, he said, I enjoyed the last three times I beat you. Now, nobody, nobody's seen that or heard that. And or that's
0: me. just not on to do that. No. I mean, because, you can't do
1: that. So, with what's gone on in the last three events, especially with the hitting the door and, and yeah. on the way to the toilet, Um, I thought, well, okay, well, I'll I'll have my say at the end because I was obviously not happy at sort of thing, you know. So um, I knew going back to this, it's imperative if you get in the top 16, then it's it's a big deal because obviously it's guaranteed X amount of money. And obviously, you know, the latter stages of tournaments. So I knew that he had to beat me in order to stay in the top 16. So it was a big game for him as well, you know. So anyway, so I had my say after um, I won the match, shook his hand and I said, "Um, how's the top 16 looking? All right. So is this get,
0: when you're still in the arena?
1: Yes, it's when I, shook, this? Yes, when, we, when I shook hands with right. him. So it's something I regret and it's something I shouldn't have done because I should have been more professional. Um, of course, he didn't quite get my humour as if to say, well, I am in the top 16. And I said, yeah, but you're not next year, are you? And this is all whilst we're shaking hands. So that stirred him right up. Um, and like I said, if I could have turned back time, I wouldn't have said it. But, it, you know, it, it, in the heat of the moment, and it's the World Championship, you know, if... If a fellow sportsman whispers in your ear, you know something like that, then you can have your say back. And maybe there should have been a time and place where I should have said it, and it wasn't then.
0: He wanted to take you on in a boxing match. After that, you had no interest whatsoever. Bizarrely, he then, for some reason, ended up having a boxing match against Mark King off the back of it. He came to Dublin and fought against a Gaelic footballer. He must have been looking at that and thinking, well, "What's this all about? What's this got to do with a snooker match?"
1: Yeah, well, that's where my professionalism came in, I think, because I thought, "Right, it's put to bed. That's it. I'm, I'm having no comment on it." And I think Mark King got involved by saying, "You know that." Uh, he was trying to defend me and this, that and the other and saying, oh, he's out of order. So if he wants a boxing match, I'll, I'll fight him. And it escalated from that. So if they want to just play silly games and let them carry on, you know, it's not. So, I mean, it just, and it proves what the poor man was like, Quinton, is the fact that, you know, he, he did what he did a bit later on. He was banned from snooker. So, I, it doesn't matter to me. It's uh, it's all done and dusted.
0: Well, let's get back to the snooker then. And after that match, you went on to play Ronnie O'Sullivan in the second round. He won, but it was very close, and you played really well. You almost pulled off another massive Crucible upset.
1: Yeah, well, they sort of ripped me off that I was, you know, I was going to get an absolute hammering because, to be fair, Ronnie did hammer everybody he played for that 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 tournament. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, do you know what? It, against Ronnie, especially. He was very, very, I hate to say it, but he was very, very lucky to come out at four each and eight all. Because the first two sessions, I definitely should have won the last frame of each session, which would have put me 5-3 up and possibly, uh, what is it, 10-6 up. Um, so yeah, so I could have won both sessions and they came out, you know, leveled each session. And, uh, and that was the, the, the story of the match, really, that we was, you know, frame for frame. And um, yeah, it was very close and unfortunately you know I, I came out the loser but I was very close to beating him
0: absolutely and he went on as you say to win the championship in very convincing fashion from there as for you after that thing started to trail off a bit you would still get some good results and have some good runs from time to time but by 2013 you dropped off the tour now did you start thinking this is it it's all over it's the end
1: yeah well I, I, I dropped off the tour because I, I funny enough that year that I I fell out the top 64 and the way the ranking was seated that it meant that I had to pre-qualify as a pro so I thought right I'm finishing now that's it that was I think I was 40 years old at the time and I thought right that's it so uh, I did a bit of work for two or three years doing a bit of labouring and um, and then he, um, then Barry Earn took over the game and, and there was going to be more money in it because there weren't a lot of tournaments mm. at the time you know they they were scratching around with like six, seven, eight events for the year so uh yeah, so I thought I, didn't, I never thought I was going to play again sort of thing you know but of course I never sold McCue and uh, as Wait, we were you even playing at all Andy even socially or practicing um no I didn't practice really if I if I did the odd exhibition I'd practice a couple of days before um, I think I was playing leagues League snooker at, uh, where the Crackington Avon snooker club is where I play um, I was playing in the Bu league so I was playing one frame a week um, but but that was only just for a bit of a social really um, so I didn't play pretty much didn't play um, and then like I said Because there was more money in the game, I thought, you know what, I'll have a go at the Q-skill. So I think it took me two or three attempts to get through on the Q-skill. But I was in the top-ups two or three times Mm -hmm. where I was quite high up on that ranking of the Q-skill. So, yeah, so so here I am back on the tour and Mm -hmm. trying to fight. But how hard was it to do that, having been off the
0: professional scene for so long and not really playing much, to get yourself back to the standard where you were capable of performing a Q School to that level?
1: Well, I mean, probably that's why I didn't get through for the first two or three times because it, it is tough because, I mean, there's only 12 places up for grabs and you've only got sort of a 15-day window to do it over a year. So, uh, yeah, that side of it was hard. But, um, yeah, I, I knew, you know... I, I there's always the experience there really i mean you know you've got the young kids coming through and they're good players and stuff but you you just try and use your experience to your advantage and that's pretty much what i've done in order to get back on really in the end and um you know thankfully i'm back on and i'm actually enjoying it i'm actually enjoying it and um
0: it's like reliving your youth isn't it you thought it was all over and now here you are again playing as a pro at this age
1: yeah well you have a little bit of a different mindset really because you think well okay i mean i'm quite settled um I haven't been silly over the years, money wise and stuff. So it, you know, I'm quite settled at home, wife and children and stuff. And um, yeah, it's quite. It's just having a balance really, and um, and trying to enjoy it as much as you can. And and to be fair, the last twelve months it's been a bit of a change because I've now got a star table they put in in the Avon Snooker Club that I play at, and um, it's been a been a deal breaker for me really because it's you know it's it's a great facility to play and i'm now playing on a star table which has made it's definitely making a difference and um i think probably that's you know that's why i've actually started achieving a little bit more in the last six months
0: let's come to what i call the quick fire round this is just where i throw a few topics at you and you say (laughs) whatever comes into your head okay the best you've ever played in a match best
1: i've ever played in a match um That'll have to be beating Steve Davis for the first time, making three centuries in a row. The toughest opponent you've ever had? Ronnie O'Sullivan.
0: The best place you've ever been to anywhere in the world?
1: The best place I've ever been to anywhere in the world? Um,
0: Your own part of
1: the world is pretty nice, of course, so anywhere else has got to compare, it? you're you're quite right, really. Cornwall is fantastic, the north coast of Cornwall. Um, But if it's abroad, I would say somewhere like Thailand.
0: Players you'd go on a night out with?
1: <laughs> not many, certainly not <laughs> Quinton <Ann. laughs> Um Are you much of a mixer on I, the tour? I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not, and that, purely that's not because um, you know I'm anyway. I, I'm not basically because I, uh, you know where I live in the, in the West Country, mm-hmm. because I don't seem to get to see the players other than at the tournament. So um, you know, so there. I, I don't know. I th- who would a the night movie. be out with. Um, I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to have had a night out uh, with a guy called. Um, Dave Harold. Okay, yeah, I think he's an absolute legend. That bloke because um, I know he's retired now. Yeah, it, it, I, I've said this before, and I, I don't know what radio station I would said years ago, but if Dave Harold had a, and he, he won't mind me saying this, if Dave Harold had a, a, a better cue in action, he'd be a multiple world champion. Mm. Because his mindset and his, his um, you know, his tactical game is incredible.
0: Mm. On his day, he was a very, very good player oh, yeah. in all departments. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, your favourite venue that you've ever played
1: oh, at? Well, it's got to be the Crucible. Yeah. Can't I mean, if you more. to be fair, if you took the Crucible out of the equation, it would have been the Masters at Wembley mm. by a long way. But it's not the World Championship, is it? So it has to be the Crucible. But the reason I say that is because how small the Crucible is in comparison to what the Conference Centre was at Wembley.
0: Let's talk about a few other things then. And it's interesting that you are still on the tour. I know you've been off for a while, but you're back on now at the age you are. And a lot of players of a similar sort of age are still out there getting results. Now, what's going on with the lack of players coming through, do you think, Andy? Is it just a fact of the numbers game that not enough kids are taking up the game? Are they not getting the right coaching? Is it the fact that the amateur scene isn't perhaps as thriving as it once was? What do you think can be done to bring more new talent through?
1: Well, there's two questions there. I mean, the first one um, is about the, the talent. And, and being a pro for like 30 years. Um d- don't forget I was only just in front of the class of 92 really because they started coming through and you know you go on about you know obviously which is the John Higgins, uh, Mark Williams and Ronnie O'Sullivan. Um but I grew up with them really. I mean they, they played in the British under 19s and British under 16s like I did and when I won the British under 19s I think I beat John Higgins on the way. So albeit he was a year or two years younger than me. Um so I, I was in that elk really but um you know that so that it's great to be around that sort of you know stigma really that i, I grew up with the you know the greats really um, and they're still here 30 years on um and and the second question you're saying about the where's the where's the players coming through um the difficult side really is there's a lot of snooker clubs shutting down
0: mm-hmm.
1: and if they can only get to play in social clubs there's certainly down in our, our part of the country um, if they can only play in social clubs, normally they've got to be 16 or 18 to be able to play. So that is already holding a lot of players back in order to get, the, you know, I mean, for instance, in Plymouth, when I was um, a, a teenager growing up, there was nine snooker clubs in Plymouth and they were big clubs. I mean, they were 20 plus tables, a lot of them, um, including the club that I play, you know, trained at. That had 19 tables in there and it was, it was full every day in the 80s. Um, and now there's only one snooker club in Plymouth. So it it tells you where it's going and um, I think we need to, you know, need to rebuild these snooker clubs. I don't know how. I don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but it seems to be thriving in China and it seems to be dying a little bit of death in in England, which is unfortunate because, uh, and I think that is why. Um, you're not getting the the, the talent coming through at a young age.
0: And that's just in terms of participation, though, isn't it? Because you look at the viewing figure Snooker gets on TV, and it's not just older people watching it, it does really well among young people as well. So the interest clearly is there in Snooker itself. It's just getting the guys in to actually play and even start out in the game before they can dream of becoming pros.
1: Yeah, but they you know they need to have facilities to play in mm-hmm. and if they if they're not getting that then it's going to be difficult. I mean if you, if you revert to China, I mean wh- where are they sat over there? I mean apparently there's there's star tables in in schools over there where they're playing. So, you know, that's why there's 30 40 players from China, you know, playing on the tour at a minute because um you know, it is completely turning on its head and uh so I don't know. I don't I d- <laughs> For instance, if somebody said to me, and people have asked me over the years, "Oh, why don't you, you know, open up a snooker club? It would be great. It would be great." But I don't know whether it would be that profitable. I mean, that, that's the worry. And yet, if you would seem to guess, if I was an ex-pro, you know, if I couldn't make it work, then who can? So I, I don't know where the answer is, but I still I, I do believe that it's got to be more clubs opening again rather than shutting. You
0: do have your own business,
1: don't you? Yeah. When I'd finished, um, I, I did a bit of labouring for a for a guy. Um, doing a bit of bricklaying and you know mainly labouring and stonework and stuff and um and then i yeah on the side then i was also doing a bit of painting and decorating and a bit of gardening and stuff like that really just to sort of see me through
0: really um but did you knock that on the head then when you got back through q school or you already stopped it by then
1: yeah absolutely so um yeah so main you know main now mainly back just train as hard as I can and try and do as well as I can but yeah so it's, that's all stopped
0: and when you say about gardening did you have the ability to do landscaping or anything like that or was it just fairly basic stuff
1: well I'm I'm, I'm fairly hands-on really I mean I, you know I'm not qualified in anything because all I've done is played snooker but I was lucky that in the in the late 90s I bought a, I bought a barn and my brother-in-law converted it for me Um and I just learned a little bit a few things on the way really and um, thought yeah I can put me put me hands on that so that sort of followed suit really and and now I can do I can do pretty much most bits really when it's to do with maintenance and things like that. So uh, it's something. It's possibly no doubt I'm going to fall back on at some point. But um, so yeah, so I can do most things. Maybe not full-on landscaping, but mainly you know it, the gardening work is more just you know keeping things tidy, grass cutting and hedge trimming and all that sort of thing really. And what
0: else do you do away from the game, Andy? When the queue goes down for the night?
1: Well, I've got two girls which are 15 and 12, so they keep me occupied a lot. Mm. Um, So, yeah, so we try and and do as much as we can. I mean, the lockdown was was tough, really, because, uh, you know, there was limited things to do. Couldn't go abroad and things like that.
0: Is it true that you met your wife in a snooker club?
1: Yeah, she used to run... Well, run. She used to work in a snooker club, um, one of the Riley's clubs in Plymouth many years ago. Um, So, yeah, we met there and... uh, 22 years on we're still together so
0: you speak very well of devon and the area that you're from have you always lived there you never moved out of the area at all
1: well no well I've, i sort of moved out of here because tavistock i was originally based which was near plymouth um but now i live the outskirts well i'm living now between Launceston and Boscastle on the map um so yeah very near the north coast and it's a fantastic shoreline Brilliant.
0: Not great for travel though, is it? It seems like anywhere in the country, when you're trying to get from that part of England to anywhere else, it just seems to take forever.
1: Yeah, it does make me laugh because sometimes I come to a tournament and I hear a player moaning that he's just <laughs> travelled like hundred miles or whatever to get here, and I'm thinking, whoa I mean, just to get to York from here is 350 miles. And the um, old Plymouth Pavilions
0: was a fantastic venue, wasn't it? I know.
1: It? Yeah, it's a shame it's not there now because yeah, it'd, it'd been lovely to to actually go back there and play again under you know with the crowds and stuff but I don't think it'll ever well I say never but well
0: I've got so many it, tournaments now I mean I do think there's a chance oh, I'll be maybe great. back there someday
1: yeah it would be great
0: snookers required for Andy Hicks he's had a great tournament four consecutive final frame deciding victories in his 49th year when a year ago he thought he'd probably played his last competitive snooker
1: it was just one of those days that everything went tough and Barry be the first to say the first four frames I mean I could have been four no up I mean he he didn't play fantastic and uh, he's four 0 no up and I'm four 0 no down so um yeah it was it, it's unfortunate that um, it's one of those matches that I want to forget and it's unfortunate because on the basis that it's a quarter final and a big match you know but um obviously loved it I mean it's um it's the only reason I got me cue back out after retiring for three or four years and uh purely because it's it's nice to be back here and, and feeling like you can compete and you know, don't get me wrong, I mean, I started dreaming myself, you know in the quarterfinals thinking, you know who knows who knows if you get a semis or final? so you know you start to dream a little bit, but um so it proves that i my mindset is there that I can do it still it's just a matter of um how much um effort and stuff I want to put in in practice still to try and do it sort of, you know, leading up to my 50s.
0: In his 23rd UK Championship appearance, Barry Hawkins finally makes it to the semi-finals. He's two matches away from landing the biggest title of his career.
1: My aim was when I got back on the tour was to have a good run in the tournament and I'd be, I'd be sort of a happy man. As you get older, you sort of see things in your goals a little bit differently. Um, I've got to be realistic, you know, about winning the tournament but, um, that whilst I'm still in it I can still win it I guess
0: and maybe one last appearance at the Crucible that's got to be within your reach
1: yeah that would be nice as well that would be nice but um, I, you know I'm, I'm trying not to build my expectations because I think when you start doing that and you, you look too far ahead sometimes you can put yourself under too much pressure but 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 deep down uh, from, from back practicing pretty hard on the star table at home the last sort of six to eight, nine months I'm starting to play a lot better snooker in practice you know, a lot better than I've done for many years. And, um, you know, I'm 48 years old, so i could got to be realistic. But I am actually playing very good snooker in practice. And uh, the, the problem I've got a little bit is the fact that there's not players, there's not in-depth of players to practice against. So I'm doing a lot of solo practice. So you never really know how you're playing until you're playing against somebody else. So that's unfortunate, but that's just that's just life of where I live. And I don't want to change that in any way, really. Um, but I'm playing good snooker and I'm playing all right in matches as well.
0: Well, anyone listening who isn't old enough to remember your heyday, I can tell you this man was a really good player in his day and was absolutely fantastic to watch as well. You were so fluent. So hopefully we're going to see a bit more of that. And it's been great sitting down to share those memories with you today, Andy. We wish you all the very best for the future and thanks for joining us on the World Snooker Tour podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, next week, it's the German Masters. Liam Highfield will be there, having come through two rounds of qualifying. And ahead of his last 32 match against Fan Yi, he'll be discussing his career so far, whether or not he's the fastest runner on tour, and the impact of his battle with Crohn's disease. I'm on a medication that I go in every eight weeks uh, and have through a, like, IV drip, sort of, in a hospital. That keeps it, keeps my immune system stop attacking itself with the Crohn's, because it's like autoimmune disease. So, as long as I go in that, I try and stay healthy, try and run, try and eat healthy. I still try and enjoy myself, because you know, the stresses of snooker can kind of, you need a bit of release. So from time to time, I, I, I go out and have a have a party and whatever, like, like everyone else sort of does. But I know that it's there for life. Um, it doesn't really, I, day to day, I don't think about it now. But, you know, it is something always, in, I suppose, in the, in the back of your mind that um, it makes you appreciate the days, I think. So that's coming up next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast. Until then, thanks so much for listening and goodbye.